so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. McFly! McFly, is this thing on? Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me in the studio is the ever chatty and always dapper with his plaid coat there. Got somewhere to go today, Brent Leatherwood. Well, I don't have any where to go today, but through the blessing of technology, I am going to be visiting with our friends the Iowa Baptists. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you're so, traveling through the interwebs. Yes, I'm, I'm traveling. That's one way to describe it. Yes. <laughs> traveling through the interweb. But waves. I'll be, I'm really excited. Uh, they're, they're preparing for their uh, state annual meeting. And uh, this is just one way we are seeking to serve our, our state partners. That's awesome. Yes, yeah. we are very But no, thankful. it's good to be with you, Lindsay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to be with you too, Brent. <laughs> I think you're pretty chatty as well. It's it's not like I'm the only one that's chatty on this show. Yes, yes. Uh, well, before our listeners check out and don't continue on with us, let me move this along. Uh, let's get to talking about what's happening this week. And first, I want to start off with what we've been featuring on ERLC.com. First off is an interview article by Jordan Wooten, and I loved this article. It's titled, Why God-Given Limits Are For Our Good, an interview with Ashley Hales on A Spacious Life, which is uh, her new book. It may be because this is just what I'm learning and what the Lord is seems like is constantly teaching me in this season of life, but this interview with Ashley Hales was just spot on to me. And it emphasizes a lesson that I learned from a a women's event that we had at our church one time where the speaker was teaching about Psalm 139 and, and it talks about being hemmed in. You've hemmed me in. And that actually means that God has put boundary lines and limits around us. And that's what this article is about. But instead of constricting us, those boundary lines instead lead to what Ashley Hales calls a spacious life. And so I just wanted to read this paragraph to you from this article. A spacious life connotes a life of purpose, rest, and stability that isn't dictated by our circumstances. It's another way of talking about the green pastures of Psalm 23 or where the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places from Psalm 16 and the place where Paul speaks about learning the secret of contentment in want or plenty from Philippians. A spacious place is a space of rescue, the space of God's presence, and a place of stable care. And Quite simply, I just want to say, who doesn't want that? What Christian doesn't want that? And instead of having a freedom to do whatever we want, pursue whatever we want, 
having unlimited options at our feet, Ashley says, you know what? The boundary lines that God has given us, uh, the quiet places, the ways that he's hemmed us in are actually designed to create a spacious life for us in Christ. Yeah, this reminds me of the kind of classic sermon illustration that I'm I'm sure a lot of us have heard about a a fish in water. And, you know, this kind of message is pretty radically countercultural in this moment where everybody wants to define what freedom is and through their own lens and experience and on their own terms. And a lot of times a, a pastor, as they are ministering to someone or in the midst of a sermon, will point out that a fish is designed for water. And uh, you may take the fish out of the water and throw them up on land, and they might see, well, yeah, that's complete freedom, but the fish is not able to thrive outside of water, and the fish is not able to flourish outside of water. And so, apply that to ourselves. God has called us to walk a very specific calling in our lives, and he wants that for our good, for our flourishing, and ultimately, the most important thing, to accomplish his good and perfect plans. And, um, you know, in our sinful nature, we rebel against that quite often. Uh, I know I certainly do, but I just have to continually remind myself that God has charted a path for our lives, and it is walking down that path with the boundaries and the parameters uh, that God in his divine wisdom has set for me and set for all of us, uh, where I can truly find freedom and freedom as designed and as defined by God himself, uh, which is knowing him and to, to make others know him as well. That's good, Brent. And as one who I struggle with FOMO, as the kids say, and uh, <laughs> comparison. This is just a good article for me to— um, Well, just in case people don't know what FOMO is, can you tell them what that acronym is? Of course they know what FOMO is. Well, just in case, let them know Fear what the— Fear of missing out. That's right. Fear That's of missing right. out, which is hard to fight against, especially in our digital age. Yes, in the social media age where we all see you know, the best pictures from the best moments mm-hmm. of everybody's best life now. Right. And we're all like, oh, well, I guess I want that. And right, we have to realize that is just a snapshot of what somebody else is experiencing. Probably it's kind of like, you know, your family pictures. Everybody get together, smile for this one brief moment, but then, you know, the toddler's running Mm -hmm. off, the six-year-old is putting bubble gum in the eight-year-old's hair, and that's reality. That's reality. And and we don't, we often— Forget that. That's right. And faithfulness is what the Lord calls us to. And so um, may we be faithful where he's planted us and may we be content and joyful where he has put us. Next up is a piece by Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, who as our policy director in DC has just been knocking it out of the park with all that has been put on her plate during this season of transition for our organization. Uh, But she has been doing great work. And An example of that is this latest article that she has given us, and it's titled, Important Supreme Court Cases to Watch This Term, Life and Religious Liberty Front and Center at the Nation's Highest Court. So I learned from Brent that this past Monday was the first Monday, and that's where on the first Monday of October, the Supreme Court's uh, next term begins. So the 2021-22 term began on Monday. And in, in light of that, 
Chelsea is highlighting for us some important cases that we are watching that deal with life issues and religious liberty issues. So I'm just going to real quick sum those up. So we've got the case Dobbs case that is coming up. The arguments began on December 1st, and that is a major life case where they are asking the court to overturn Roe and Casey, which have set the precedent for abortions in our country. The next case is Carson versus Macon. And the question in this case is, does a state violate the Constitution when it operates a program that provides students with money to attend private schools, but bars them from attending schools that provide religious instruction? So is the state discriminating against religion in this case? And then the final case that she highlights is Ramirez versus Collier. And this is almost like kind of like a movie. It's like something I've watched on TV where hours before an inmate's execution, there was a stay of execution. It was stopped because he had filed an appeal. And we signed on to an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief supporting this. And what we asked was the Supreme Court to protect the freedom of this condemned Texas inmate to have a Southern Baptist pastor lay hands on him and pray for him when he receives a lethal injection. This is something that he should be able to receive, that there's no compelling reason why he should not And so we are for this. We are for these cases that highlight life and protect life, seek to protect religious liberty. And we will be following and watching and reporting to you what happens with them. Yeah, this is just a brief snippet of a few of the cases uh, that your URLC is engaging with uh, this Supreme Court term. I mean, honestly, by the time we get to the end of next June— uh, which is traditionally when uh, the Supreme Court rolls out all of its final decisions. This will end up having been a Supreme Court term for the ages. Uh, they, they are going to make uh, some incredibly consequential decisions, it looks like. And look, not all of them may come down in a way that we as as Christians uh, will support or, or will affirm but, I mean, this is going to set down some new parameters in terms of case law in a number of areas that Southern Baptists and evangelicals uh, really are concerned about. And uh, I should note that that last case that you talked about, the Ramirez case, um, Mr. Ramirez, who is on death row in Texas, uh, that, that one is, is one that we all should be paying attention to uh, because the church that is at the center of the case the pastor who is uh, attempting to minister to Mr. Ramirez is uh, Second Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, an, an SBC church. And, um, you know, these are very weighty and heavy decisions, especially as you were talking about the state uh, ending the life of someone who has been convicted of a, a heinous crime. But even in that moment, even in those final moments uh, before someone is uh, put to death, religious liberty and religious freedom rights, um, they they don't just suddenly disappear. If if anything, and this is what we've articulated in the media, if anything, that is when they are at their most important. And so we are siding uh, with this uh, Baptist pastor down there, Reverend Moore, uh, as he is seeking to minister here in this context. Well, and in June, you know, in the past, we've, with the big Supreme Court decisions, we have had Supreme Court watching parties, decision watching parties, which I'm sure that we will <laughs> this next year, because these are such 
such important cases with major implications on issues that we care deeply about and will continue to care deeply about and advocate for. And finally, I just wanted to highlight this piece by Jill Wagner. It's actually an interview with our current SBC president, Ed Litton, and he discusses the SBC's challenges, suffering, and how to return to Jesus. And I just wanted to highlight this because it just gives us a window into the heart of Ed Litton and who he is. You know, he has faced a lot of controversy, Twitter controversy, in his first days as SBC president. And it's easy to jump to conclusions and make assumptions about someone when you only know them from other people on Twitter. But Ed Litton, as uh, people that I know who know him, he is the real deal, is what they say. And he has got an incredible testimony of walking with the Lord through deep suffering, seeing the Lord's redemption. He has a heart for seeing Jesus at the center of it all uh, within the SBC and in the hearts of Christians all over the world so that we can um, take the gospel to the nations, so that we can be a witness who rightly tells the world what our God is like. So I think that you'll enjoy this interview with him. Yeah, and Pastor Litton is uh, out there talking about how Jesus is the center of it all uh, in the SBC, uh, or should be, and that is what he wants our focus to be in our next annual meeting. So he's announced that the theme is going to be Jesus, uh, the center of it all, for our annual meeting next June in Anaheim. And he just talks about a number of uh, both the significant um, accomplishments in this recent season in SBC life, as well as just some of the challenges that we need to be praying through. And, uh, you know, his hope is that over the next year, the SBC will come around to uh, stand in unity against abuse and with an effort to make our churches safe from abuse and safe for survivors. And uh, he wants us to be a church that continues to proudly and rightfully stand for life. And um, I think that's a that's a very compelling vision coming from uh, our new SBC president. So we're, we're really thankful for Dr. Litton and his leadership in this season. Yeah, and one of the things that he calls us to and is encouraged by, he says, is prayer, that many Southern Baptists are praying people, which, of course, as believers, we should be praying people, but oftentimes it is a major challenge in our lives because we are constantly fighting distraction and trusting in our own flesh. And so he calls us to prayer, gives us uh, some ways that we can be praying for him and for the SBC in the future. So you will want to check that article out. It was hard, once again, to pick what I was going to share with you this week because we did have so much content stacked up, just good quality content from legal issues like Supreme Court rulings to an, a beautiful article by my friend Colleen about singleness. And uh, she's actually, if you think of her, she's fighting terminal cancer right now. So you can pray for her and her family. She's a wonderful writer. So you'll want to go to our site and check out those articles. But for now, Brent, that's what's happening on ERLC.com. So moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what's happening? All right. So we begin this week on the life front with news out of Texas. And so we go to the Dallas Morning News, a great paper of record in the state of Texas. I don't, I don't know that we've cited the Dallas Morning News on our show before, but I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to do that. I think it's kind of neat. All right. Dallas Morning News reports this. A federal judge Wednesday night blocked a new Texas law that banned abortions after six weeks 
and allowed private citizens to file lawsuits against anyone who facilitated the procedure. Texas immediately appealed the ruling to the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman in Austin issued a preliminary injunction forbidding state court judges and clerks from accepting suits under the new law, commonly known as Senate Bill 8, which went into effect last month. The Biden administration's Department of Justice had asked for the injunction as part of a lawsuit it filed against the state last month. From the moment SB 8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution, the Obama appointee wrote. He continued to write, That other courts may find a way to avoid this conclusion is theirs to decide. This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. The ruling was immediately praised by abortion rights groups, including Planned Parenthood and the Texas chapter of the ACLU. Uh, so uh, this is what we kind of expected, that at some point there would be a lawsuit challenging uh, the constitutionality of SB8. Uh, and, and so this is what was expected. It's going to work its way through the system. But uh, th this sort of an opinion uh, from a federal judge is... It's pretty difficult to read, I think, for those of us who are pro-life Christians and, and pro-life activists uh, that are following uh, these cases very closely. Yeah, well, and what I want to say to that Obama appointee, to quote him, this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. But let's turn the table there and say, yeah, the right to life. And let's uh, hope and pray for the ruling in Dobbs to say such, that we will not sanction one more day of depriving little boys and little girls of their constitutional right to life. You are 100% correct, uh, Lindsay. That That is absolutely the case. And look, bracket out all the theological reasons that we— would submit our reasons uh, for courts and our nation's policymakers to do the right thing and ensure that preborn lives are saved. Just go to the the very second sentence of our Declaration of Independence, the 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 founding document that initiated this whole experiment that is known as the United States of America, and it says we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't get to any of the other rights that God has given us in his sovereign wisdom. You can't get to any of those if you are unable to take the very first breath that we are able to take uh, once we are out of the womb. And and, and so it, it just— befuddles me that a judge uh, who is arguing uh, for other rights uh, does not see this most essential of rights, the right to life, as one that cannot be extinguished by the government and certainly one that should not be protected by the legal framework of this country. And so, look, it, exactly what you said. This particular law, it, it's going to continue to be challenged and it'll work its way through the court. The opportunity that is before us with the Dobbs case out of Mississippi that is in front of the Supreme Court, oral arguments are coming up for that on December 1st. And as a reminder, your ERLC has submitted a legal brief to the court 
pleading with it to overrule and overturn the disastrous uh, Roe versus Wade decision and the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision that basically affirmed Roe versus Wade. Overturn those and re- restore the ability of states to decide this and, and let us start articulating our vision for life at the state level and convincing state-level policymakers that the right to life is absolutely sacred. And let's start actually saving these lives, these lives that technology has shown us. Again, set apart the theological, you know, uh, Psalm 139. Look, let's, let's, you don't even have to go there. The technology that we have has shown us that these children in the womb have the ability to feel pain. Their heartbeat starts so much earlier than we we thought back in the 1970s when Roe versus Wade was decided. We know that these are children, and we need to stop snuffing out their lives. And we certainly need the legal environment of this country to change uh, so that the dignity and the value and the worth of these preborn lives are recognized and protected uh, which is what government has been ordained by God to do, protect our rights, not prohibit us from exercising them. Yeah, and, and the thing is, though, you can't set aside the theological, even with all the arguments in the world and all the technology in the world, because at the heart of this is a spiritual battle where no amount of technology or any of that is going to convince people because the enemy has blinded minds of unbelievers. And of course, the I know in the context that's the gospel, but we know that our eyes are not open to the truth of God's word and and to the authority of God's word to believe it unless the spirit does a work in our hearts. So Mm. I truly do feel for the women who make decisions for abortion uh, because they they can't see the truth Uh, because that would be me if I wasn't if the Lord had not opened my eyes. And so that's why our work in the pro-life world has been set out for us, that it's not uh, going to be done, that we're to continue to proclaim the good news, that we're continue to share the truth, that we're to continue to legislate and all of that while undergirded with prayer and the power of the Spirit so that the Lord, who is the only one who has the power to open eyes and soften hearts, would do that um, so that lives would be saved. And, and this is, if you're a pastor in our audience, if you're a, if you're a discipleship minister in our audience, right, this is, this is gut check time for y'all because this is exactly why our, our uh, VP of our life initiatives, Elizabeth Graham, has continually touted, we, we need to not only make abortion unnecessary, but unthinkable. And w- what does that mean when we say that? That means that there are church programs and there are churches with a willing spirit to come around uh, these women out there that are in these vulnerable situations that are in crisis, these single mothers out there who culture has constantly messaged to them, that's not a child inside of you, or even if if that is a child, that, that child is going to uh, significantly inhibit your future uh, and is is going to affect you in an economic way uh, and is, is basically going to make your life miserable. And they are constantly getting that message from culture. And the church needs to not just tell them that's not true, but be the hands and feet of Jesus and wrap, have your church community wrap your arms around these women and around these families that are in this crisis moment and support them and let them know, no, there there are other options. Choose life and there are other options. This church community will support you. 
this congregation will support you and point them to helpful parachurch organizations uh, that that will support them. And and y'all, what are you doing from the pulpit to tout adoption, to call your congregation to adopt these children? I mean, that's that's what we mean when we say so many of these women in crisis, they feel that they have no other option because they think they're going to bring a child into this world and it have no future. Show them that's not true. Paint for them a picture of what is possible, both for that child, but then with that child being in that mother's life. Uh, I mean, this, this is such an opportunity for the church to do what God has called us and plead for that child and give that mother and that child a new future within the church. Preach it. That is all true, Brent, and I am thankful for the work that we get to do in this area. Okay, our next story comes from the Religion News Service, RNS, uh, and they write, ending weeks of debate, the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee voted Tuesday, October 5th, to waive attorney-client privilege as part of an investigation of how Southern Baptist leaders have handled issues of sexual abuse in recent decades. The motion put forward by Texas Pastor Jared Wellman and passed by a 44-31 to 31 margin was a referendum on how to deal with sexual abuse but also on whether national Southern Baptist leaders have to follow the will of local churches in the nation's largest Protestant denomination. Six committee members resigned before Tuesday's meeting, and at least one member threatened during the day's passionate debate to quit if the motion passed. Other opponents pleaded for more delays. Baptist pastors and other leaders have warned that refusing to follow the messenger's will expressed at the annual meeting risked upending the trust that keeps the nation's largest denomination together. For many, Tuesday's decision restored that trust. Quote, the messengers spoke very clearly, Wellman said on Tuesday in urging his fellow committee members to approve the waiver. This is what they want. Tuesday's vote earned praise from abuse survivors and the task force. Quote, we are very pleased that the vote was so strong in favor of the messengers' plan, said R. Marshall Blaylock, pastor of First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and vice chair of the task force that will oversee the investigation. So uh, our our audience probably will recall, we've talked about this now for the the last several weeks, uh, that uh, this is a consequential vote that was in front of one of the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Executive Committee, which is the fiduciary arm of our convention of churches. And um, this is certainly going to go down as, as potentially a, a turning point in, in SBC history. Uh, and as, as you all are very aware, the RLC has a heart for this issue. Uh, and, and we want to continue leading on this issue as we have done with the Caring Well Initiative to make our churches safe for survivors and safe from abuse. And we can only do that if we are willing to uh, look inward at how we have handled these instances and how our our churches have ministered to those who have been abused and uh, and and what we're going to do to prevent it from occurring just throughout our convention and and so uh, we would applaud uh, this vote and we are we're certainly glad to see that this is this is moving forward because our messengers uh, really did speak with one voice and said, this is what needs to be done. So this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I'm glad that this finally happened. It was too long in coming. 
I'm thankful for the men and women that on the task force and the trustees, executive committee trustees and others that put in so much time, so much um, energy and effort to be able to to make this happen, so much prayer. And I do hope that the result of this um, and the findings being announced at the 2022 convention will lead, like you said, to lasting change to where our churches would be um, safe for survivors and safe from abuse. And I, I pray that victims would feel at home with us. They would feel cared for and valued and loved and heard. Yeah, that this, like you said, would go down as a, a turning point, a hinge point for us. That's right. All right, this next bit of news is on the COVID front, and that comes to us from Axios. Are COVID vaccines coming for younger kids? Well, Axios reports that Pfizer on Thursday said they submitted an official application asking the Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization for their coronavirus vaccine for children between the ages of 5 and 11. If approved, it would become the first coronavirus vaccine for younger children. The Pfizer vaccine has full FDA approval for people 16 and older and has an emergency youth authorization for those between the ages of 12 and 15. Since the start of the school year, COVID infections among children have been increasing. In August, nearly 30,000 children were admitted to hospitals with the virus, per the New York Times, which called it a record high. Uh, so this is uh, another milestone in our uh, society's effort to combat this virus. And it's, uh, it's going to be a decision point uh, for parents because, I mean, look, we are, uh, you know, quarter of the way through the, the school year and uh, these vaccines are, are coming on in time before many of us uh, are getting ready to gather uh, for Christmas and the, the holiday season. And um, so it will be interesting to see uh, what the FDA does with this request. And I know it's it's probably a time uh, for some parents of consternation, just wondering, you know, it, it's one thing to consider yourself. It's another thing to consider the health and well-being of your children. And so I do look forward to more information about these vaccines, to studies that they've done and to, you know, studies into the safety of them. I, I hope that... Oh, I hope that it won't be near as politicized as it was um, with uh, with us as adults. Our children don't deserve that, and they um, we want them to be kept safe and protected. So, and as a mom of young children, I'm just looking forward to those next round of vaccines for the under five age. Yeah, absolutely. All right, our next story comes to us from NBC News, and it is about the budget debates in our nation's capital. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Thursday announced an agreement to extend the debt limit through early December, temporarily ending a partisan standoff just 11 days before the government's deadline to avert default. Quote, it is our hope we can get this done as soon as today, Schumer said on the Senate floor. The deal would raise the limit by $480 billion, which is the figure U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says is needed to get to December 3rd, according to a Senate aide. The agreement could serve as the basis for a short-term fix as the nation faces an October 18th deadline to lift the limit. A vote on the agreement is possible on Thursday and would need 60 votes to prevent what the Treasury Department warns would be an economic calamity if the country defaults for the first time. 
So listeners will remember that last week we were kind of kidding when we, we I guess we were kidding. I don't know. We were, we were talking in kidding terms. Uh, the government gave itself more of our money, and this week they gave themselves more credit. Uh, so uh, again, <laughs> this I think for all of us who you know try and manage our our household's budget, uh, this just seems farcical, and and that's why we have to laugh about it. Because otherwise, if you if you truly looked at our nation's finances, I think we all would cry. Yes, yeah, it's not an example for us to use for our children to teach them about how to use money. Do you, off the top of your head, can you think of a country that is a good example of how they manage their money? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, but we don't have to look that too far into our own past to see when we actually seemed to budget in a responsible way. And that was in the the mid-90s when we passed a balanced budget and we were on the path to having a record surplus. And that actually happened over the course of just a few years. Now, obviously, as as more debt comes online with uh, more spending, and we should be clear that uh, a lot of the debt that we are incurring comes from automatic programs. Uh, so interest on our debt is a huge driver of our debt, as well as some of the, the mandatory programs that we have. And, and so un- until those are reformed in some way, as well as our, our spending is placed in a posture that is feasible uh, with the current income that comes into the government. I, I mean, until our leaders get together in a room and say, this is the, the path that we want to go down, we're just going to honestly keep doing this over and over, which is essentially kicking the can down the road so that those, those kind of hard decisions uh, that I was just talking about uh, don't get made. And um, that's just not the way to do this. And, you know, so it's, it's tough, but leadership is, is tough. And um, that just, as it, as it comes to our nation's bills, it's just not much leadership right now. Yeah. And there hasn't been for quite some time. All right, so finally, from the world of sports, baseball playoffs have begun, and that excites me, your number one baseball fan here in the the ERLC offices. Uh, It began this week with the wild card play-in games taking place in both the American and National League. So baseball's best rivalry saw one more game. The Boston Red Sox beat the New York Yankees 6-2 earlier this week. And then in the middle of the week, the Los Angeles Dodgers beat the St. Louis Cardinals, that who came into the playoffs as arguably the hottest team, uh, with a thrilling walk-off two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, that that was a great game, uh, one for the ages for sure. But um, at the end of the day, look, here's the deal. Everyone in our audience, you need to be rooting for the Atlanta Braves because that's my team. And honestly, they're America's team. So that's... Uh, that's what everybody should be cheering for. You know, I try to not let my eyes glaze over when you talk about baseball. Uh, everybody, everybody needs to be out there doing the chop. Alas, they do. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So. That, I do not like that song as a Florida no, Gators fan. No, because you either. think of it. Yeah, Actually, so did you know? Else. Did you know that the reason that the Atlanta Braves do the tomahawk chop mm-hmm. is because there were a group of Florida State Seminoles that came up to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, which is where the Braves were playing at that point. I think this was 1990. And they came to the upper deck and they started doing it. And 
the Braves fans just adopted it. it from there. Yeah, and so and now it's now it's a part of Braves country. Hmm. And uh, well, listen, it's a great great addition. Baseball. I go only go to baseball games if ever I go for the snacks. I'm there for the for the Coke. I'm there for the pretzels, the hot dogs. Sometimes, if I don't mind uh, cutting my life short by five years at least, <laughs> but uh, baseball just wasn't raised on it. I would like to understand it better, but I'm so glad that you love it. No, oh, gosh, I, I love it. This is honestly, this is like one of my favorite uh, sports times of the year. College football is well underway. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, My Tennessee Volunteers have not yet lost to the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, But they will. They they will. They will. They thank you. They will. Hey, listen, my Gators lost lost, to Kentucky. I was going to say, the Vols already lost to your Gators, which is terrible enough. But there's always that little glimmer of hope that I have about this time of year that maybe Tennessee will compete with Alabama. They won't. Uh, But anyway, so college football is well on its way. Baseball playoffs are here. The postseason, I mean, gosh, that is just, this is a great time of year. Well, I need to add one more thing to your culture rundown, Brent. I can't believe you did not add it. The great Facebookogram blackout of 2021. Yeah, everybody had to talk to each other. Yes. How did you not talk about the fact that Facebook and Instagram were down for a few hours, was it? I haven't read an article on it. Well, A, I'm not on Facebook. But you're on Instagram. Are you on Instagram? I'm on Instagram. Your wife's it, on Instagram. Yeah, but I'm on it. Yeah, but what's fascinating to me is that billions of dollars were lost. Yeah, but I try to pretend those things aren't there. But they are. They are. I One know. funny, was it a meme or a tweet or something that Harvard announced well, that this was it all It had just to be a, a tweet because it was the only oh, thing that was Oh, that's right. Up. It was a tweet. It was a meme. <laughs> well, it could have been a meme that you could have shared. Oh. Okay. Yeah, on Twitter. But uh, Twitter turned into Instagram for the time being and that Harvard was basically saying, surprise, this was all just an experiment. <laughs> and we've closed <laughs> you know? down yeah, Facebook we've closed and Instagram. It down. <laughs> so anyway, but- uh, This was that, all one big joke that we played on society yeah, and the results have been disastrous right, since Facebook was created. <laughs> and that is absolutely uh, true. Yes, but alas, uh, it's back and running. People are making their money and sharing their opinions and all that, but- Well, and we should note, I mean, we actually, we should note, uh, Facebook was in the news this week because there was an internal uh, staffer who has leaked a number of documents uh, essentially uh, being a whistleblower about uh, things that are going on inside of uh, Facebook. And she was talking about the nature of the algorithms that uh, Facebook has put into place and and how it, you know, it seems to incentivize some of the worst, uh, most polarizing uh, views to be shared on Facebook. And, and those are the ones that, that actually go viral on Facebook. And um, look, I would say this, turn to our colleague, Jason Thacker, who is, you know, kind of our leading ethicist uh, on the staff. And, and certainly uh, that is the case within the area of technology. Uh, he is talking about all of this on his podcast, uh, The Digital Public Square, and uh, he's got a number of resources uh, that have both looked at this and probably will now that this is back in the news. So, yeah, very big week uh, for Facebook and social media in general. So, all right, Lindsay, that's enough. <laughs> that, that's that's your look at this week in culture. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what are you going to talk about this time around? Okay, so this is an uh, this is an, an endorsement of the movie because I haven't seen it. But uh, it it marks the end of an era. Daniel Craig's time as James Bond is coming to an end with the latest release, which is now in theaters, of the latest release of his 007 
movie franchise uh, with no time to die. And I got to be honest, I've actually kind of liked the Daniel Craig James Bond. I remember when he first started, everybody was like, oh, it's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed James Bond. Have have we ever had that? Is is this going to feel weird? And he's done uh, five films now. And honestly, I I like the fact that it's following a a somewhat consistent storyline. It's not like some of the other James Bond uh, movies that have just essentially been kind of weird one-offs and had like some strange like sci-fi kind of stuff to them. Ultimately, I think Sean Connery is is probably still the best all-time James Bond. Pierce Brosnan probably had the best hair, but uh, Daniel Craig has certainly shown himself to be a worthy Agent 007. And um, yes, and I, I you know I'm sad to see his time as James Bond come to an end because they have been uh, really good movies, but uh, it's interesting to see where they'll go from here. So that's a lot of folks in culture are talking about that. And I thought it was uh, mm-hmm. worthy to bring to the lunchroom segment. I'm so excited. My husband loves James Bond. We want to go see the movie. Daniel Craig, I do think has been a great James Bond. The movies have been great. I like the style of them. I tried to watch a Pierce Brosnan one I go back and watch it. Was it a Pierce Brosnan one? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, it was terrible. I couldn't watch it. Yeah. Like, some of, some of the later Pierce Brosnan ones got just a little bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I guess I could go back and try some Sean Connery ones, which, listen, I love Sean Connery, but Daniel Craig has done a great job. There's (laughs) that iconic scene where Sean Connery's at, he's in an establishment, and the person serving him asks him, you know, what his name is, Bond. James Bond. James Bond. That's so great. Yeah, that's... I got to tell you, though, I do, I am not feeling positive about a female James Bond Oh, is that what's That's being what's talked about? Next. Yes. Really? Yes. And, I uh, thought I thought the speculation was it was going to be. Uh, is it Idris Elba? Uh, which would be great. Yeah. But I don't think I thought it was a female James Bond. So I can report back to you. And well, I'm not, can we just be clear? No. Would it be like Jamie Bond? I don't know what her name would be. Well, hopefully it would not be a female James Bond. Maybe a well, female 007, Which yeah yeah. yeah. But I mean maybe James. But. No, James now is becoming a kind of a gender neutral name. Well, it's not. No, it's. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's becoming. Well, people can try, uh, but it's not going to be. James is not a female name. It's a masculine name, James. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I don't know if for sure the next James Bond is going to be female, but I certainly heard that, and I'm not feeling positive about it. (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't feel positive about that either. Moving on. to yeah, what are you bringing my lunchroom is an article that was out a couple weeks ago about the author of The Five Love Languages, which I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of. I know some people are like, wah, wah, not five love languages. It's not, you know, theological enough for me or whatever. Okay, there's some truth to some of it. I don't think you can use them as an excuse to not do certain things, but— Why I'm highlighting it is an article out of Christianity Today about Gary Chapman. And actually, one of our colleagues, Chelsea, grew up at his church. And I love this article. It's titled, Gary Chapman Doesn't Know He's Famous. And it just talks about how his life has not changed much since this book came out, which is one of the top-selling Christian books of all time. I love that he is the real deal when that's how people have described him, especially as you contrast it with the podcast that's out now about Mark Driscoll and uh, some characteristics about him and and some things that were going on in his church. 
Gary Chapman, this says is that he does not take an income from his writing or speaking conferences. All of those go into a nonprofit that was started in the early 1980s. Uh, And it says, in all of his stunning publishing success, he did one thing that smacked of blockbuster authordom. In 2004, he purchased a second home. It's a modest two-bedroom that he can see across his backyard. He bought it circa 1960s furniture and all, and it's a space for writing and afternoon naps, which is just hilarious to me. So I, I love this. And then it says, he took a trip, found Lottie Moon's grave, It was a small little stone thing. All it said was Lottie Moon gave her birth date and death date and said faithful unto death. And he said, I wept. And I said, God, that is what I want to be faithful unto death. May the Lord raise up more men like him and women like him. May his tribe increase because that is what we need more of. Not this celebrity culture stuff we got going on. Absolutely. But more men and women like Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman is, he is fantastic. And I'm so thankful. His... His uh, writing has affected so many marriages uh, and so many relationships in in a great way and uh, in a God-honoring way. And so you're absolutely right. May his tribe increase. We need more Gary Chapmans in this uh, troubled, troubled world that we live in. And may my words of affirmation increase because that is how my husband thrives and that is where I am weakest. Words of affirmation. So... I need a little help from old Pastor Gary on that. And uh, may your words of affirmation increase, Brent, as my faithful (laughs) co-host. Lindsay, you do a great job um, co-hosting this podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. So before we digress, I think this is probably a good place to end it. And just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And in addition to listening to our podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who's one of the leading voices on technology and culture. And if you'd like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to us as Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And as always, we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.